the father, Pat, who was diagnosed with cancer, but at first they thought the cancer was benign. They sent the tests forward for additional lab. The results were that it was uh, a malignant tumor that was uh, very, very uh, dangerous and needed to be removed, obviously, and that those test results didn't get through for six months because essentially it was just an overlooked fax. The person who sent the fax didn't really bother to double check why they hadn't received that information yet. And so six months went by and he did not get the proper treatment. Now he died of cancer, right? We all agree that somebody who dies of cancer, dies of cancer, goes on their uh, death certificate. But what doesn't go on there is that they lost six months of treatment. They could have had a longer life, if not even had the cancer completely uh, eliminated, had they been getting treatment from the day one that they should have been. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson. The Sheridan family certainly knows about the devastation caused by medical error. Sue and Pat's newborn son, Cal, due to a misdiagnosing of his jaundice, was left with brain damage. Now, Cal lives with significant cerebral palsy. Years later, Pat, although correctly diagnosed with cancer, a pathology report failed to be communicated to Pat or his doctor for six months and Pat died of cancer at age 45. In this episode of Medical Error Interviews, I chat with documentary filmmaker Mike Eisenberg about his film, To Air is Human, about the Sheridan family and the state of patient safety. Mike is the son of late patient safety pioneer Dr. John M. Eisenberg. And as you will hear Mike say, once he started investigating patient safety and medical error, he felt compelled to carry on his father's legacy. If you would like to support the podcast 
and our stories about medical error and solutions to patient safety. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and other podcast platforms. And you can also leave a kind review. If you would like to support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron, go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron. To become a premium patron, you get access to video versions of all the podcast interviews. If you need an experienced counselor for your own experience with medical error, or living with chronic illness, or LGBT issues, or any of life's challenges, you can book an online video chat counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here is my interview with Mike Eisenberg. Thanks to Mike Eisenberg for sharing his experience of delving into and shedding a light on medical errors and patient safety and the machinations that sustain our medical system's high rate of medical error. If you need counseling support for your own experience with medical error or other issues like LGBT, living with a chronic illness, or any of life's challenges, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. If you would like to support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron, go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron. To become a premium patron, you get access to video versions of all the podcast interviews. You can also support the podcast by subscribing on any of the podcast platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and you can also leave a kind comment or review. Thank you for listening to this episode of Medical Error Interviews. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. Uh, so yeah, if we were to take things in chronological order, uh, where did you grow up and what led you down this particular path of documentary filmmaking? Well, I grew up in Philadelphia. Well, I was born in Philadelphia. Uh, my, uh, my childhood was mostly in Maryland outside of DC and, um, you know, I, I I would say for the majority of my childhood, I was not familiar with or interested in healthcare. Although my father, which we can get into shortly, uh, had a significant role in healthcare, especially health policy and medical error. And as a documentary filmmaker, my passion has always been um, movies and documentaries, especially because of their ability to really capture 
parts of the world and stories in the world that you otherwise wouldn't get to see for yourself. Um, fiction is a really cool and, and interesting way of telling stories, much harder, much more expensive, much harder to just jump into. Documentaries, if you, if you have access, you have a story and then it becomes a creative challenge to put them together in a way that people who are interested feel like they're gathering new information. And for people who don't know about the topic or who aren't interested are engaged and want to learn more. Um, and it kind of led us down a path that uh, eventually got us to making Two Heirs Human, the documentary that we just recently finished um, and released which has a combination of personal uh, with my father's role in history and patient safety guiding me through who to talk to and what to what to, what stories to tell and my own curiosity as somebody completely outside of healthcare um, and without a story to tell necessarily with medical error for uh, a perspective on on what somebody else in that same position might want to hear and see so that they can get engaged Okay. And so what was maybe the pivotal point that uh, made you want to do, you know, actually invest the time and energy and money uh, and passion into making this documentary? Well, uh, about three and a half years ago is when we truly started the journey of Two Airs Human. And it, it began in earnest as um, a short documentary about AHRQ, which is the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality that my father was the director of until he passed away in 2002. And that in and of itself was sort of spawned by uh, the, this annual reemergence of a discussion about AHRQ's budget being slashed by potential opposition in politics. Uh, they don't get that much money, but it's a little money that some people don't feel is necessary. And um, anybody who knows what AHRQ does realizes that they actually have far less money than they should have because of their role. Um, setting aside politics, um, it, I still kind of knew how to get a hold of all these people who worked with my dad who are still in healthcare. And we started out by just traveling to DC out of pocket to interview them about well, what's going on and what is AHRQ's role and how do we inform people about this agency that they know nothing about? And all of those conversations continued down a similar path of medical error, of patient safety, of improving care in this country. And it was very evident to me that that's a conversation that is no longer had. It was clearly something that was being discussed in the late 90s, but, but the general public wouldn't have the slightest clue what a medical error looked like, let alone how prominent they are. And it felt like my responsibility to carry on in some ways my father's legacy of trying to spearhead a campaign of awareness, but at the same time show people what's happened in these 20 years since that original report came out and how healthcare is improving. The big picture though, of what we like to do as filmmakers, and when I say we, I refer to myself and my two production partners, Matt and Kaylee, we like to try and stay positive. Um, documentaries, especially about healthcare and medical error are often very negative and very um, expose style where they're trying to show you how bad it can be. 
and of course you have to do that in a, in a way to tell people it's a it's an urgent crisis but we really spent a lot of energy to make sure that this film was positive that this film showed what it looks like when people actually do take this issue seriously what the changes look like and not just focus on the events and the harm itself but actually focus on the progress and uh, hopefully guide people in a way that will make them want to help expedite that process. Mm, so you dovetail very nicely with my podcast because the subtitle is Secrets, Stories, and Solutions. Right. So, yeah. Uh, and so what was the report in the late 90s that you referred to? So the report was called Two Air is Human. Uh, I think it was called Building a Safer System. I'm going to guess off the top of my head, but it was um, a report that used research that a lot of the leaders in health policy and health research at the time were collaborating on to determine just how bad medical error was and just how safe and reliable our healthcare system was. And we actually have some people who were writers of that, that original report in our film, and uh, we don't reference it much. Uh, it's it, it, except in title, really, I guess, is the most <laughs> obvious reference. Uh, the, 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 the research that came out in 1998 with that report was shocking for most people. It said 44 to 98,000 people die every year for medical error. And that was a brand new concept for people. It hit national headlines. Bill Clinton, who was president at the time, had uh, put in his State of the Union address that they're going to curb medical errors within the next five years um, by a significant margin, which never really happened, simply because the numbers are very difficult to rally everyone around. At that time, those numbers were contested by a lot of people. Now, flash forward to today, and the most recent research we have depending on which one you prefer, is either Marty Macari's study out of Johns Hopkins that says 251,000 people die every year from medical error, or uh, John James's study, which ranges all the way from 240,000 to 440,000. And it, it is just an impossible thing to truly quantify because the CDC doesn't have a... a, a a label for your death certificate that says you died by medical error. What's the and CDC? The CDC, the, the Center for Disease Control, which is essentially in charge of identifying causes of death amongst many other things that they do. Um, we reference in our film the top 10 causes of death as they are, uh, as they're listed every year by the CDC. And medical error is not on it, but if it were considered an actual cause of death, the projected number of people, even uh, the more conservative projections that exist right now, would have it as the number three leading cause of death in America. And, and that is a significant cause for alarm. I don't think we should be comparing um, <clears throat> causes of death to, to try and uh, use them as some, some sign of one is more important than the other. We saw somebody on the internet, a famous person uh, who, who, will be name, who will remain nameless, but people might know who he is, comparing gun violence to other causes of death, medical error being one of them. And um, that's not really the right way to think about things, but it does help give you some perspective. 
in thinking about the number of uh, the, what we do in the film of the number of planes that would have to crash every day in order for that same number of people to die from plane accidents. And it was somewhere along the lines of like seven or eight planes, regular, regular aircraft, two or three jumbo jets every day. And it's just a staggering number. I, I think anybody who sees the numbers of projected deaths, even if they were still 44 to 98,000, would think that's just way too high. It's the same, almost the same as the opioid epidemic that I think is 50,000 a year or something. So the, the question that really comes out of these numbers, it, it should not be whether they are pinpoint accurate or not. It's very hard to actually determine uh, whether or not medical error was the cause of death, but it, it is part of someone's story um, too often. And the question needs to be not necessarily how do we get the number down, but actually how do we get a more accurate number in the first place? And uh, that comes with awareness and research and taking this problem seriously so that people understand when healthcare did not uh, did not go as smoothly or as perfectly as it should be or as is expected. And when an error, even the smallest kind, like you know, a fax not going through and causing a few months delay in treatment, uh, is, is considered a medical error. That would be a great end game for us. So if uh, this report came out in the 90s and it was very compelling and staggering and the, the facts that it have, and 20 years later, a couple more studies come out with just as big of numbers, how come there hasn't been a huge reaction from the medical system to make those corrections? Well, I think there's two answers to that. The quick first one is that the numbers themselves are um are are not are, are not uh it's not a consensus around them right um some people will argue well this many people die in hospitals every year so how could that many people be dying of medical error well it, they're not all dying in the hospital medical errors happen in hospitals sometimes don't cause the death in the hospital uh they could die somewhere else or or later down the road in their healthcare um, journey. The, the, the big question, and you're on the right track, I think, is, is why hasn't anybody done anything about this? I actually think the numbers that we're seeing today were probably the same numbers we saw back in the late 90s, but the research was in its infancy. And the reason why we're not seeing as many tangible solutions is because of the just the sort of the way that we have all been trained as people, especially Americans, to treat the healthcare system, in which the people and don't make mistakes. They went to school for eight years or twelve years, and therefore they are right all the time. Get a second opinion, sure, but no one, no one's ever talking about third opinions or fourth opinions. I mean, it, healthcare in and of itself is is a very precise art, uh, but it makes tons of mistakes. And if we only rely on the healthcare system itself to prevent those mistakes from leading to harm, we forget the most pivotal person in that chain, which is the patient. Um, so long answer short, I, I think the reason we haven't seen real change that's, that's visible on a grander scale uh, is because 
the healthcare community has not embraced the patient in this process yet. Uh, some healthcare systems have. We've visited over 200, almost 250 hospitals uh, with the film in a sort of screening tour. And many of them are doing really interesting things to help curb error. But only a few of them have really engaged the patient and gotten those extra eyes and ears and mouths involved in the communication process of delivering safe and reliable care. And that seems like such an obvious place, if not to start, at least to incorporate in the basis of starting an investigation is to include the patient. It's so obvious that you wonder why they're not doing it. And I think part of it is this sort of the, the, easy, the easy answer for um, a hospital board would be, well, if we engage the patient in this, then we have to admit that we make mistakes. And that admission in healthcare is considered guilt. And it shouldn't be. It absolutely shouldn't be. Some healthcare systems, and, and um, I'll reference one because I think their story is really positive, and I've, and I've mentioned it a number of times, uh, MedStar Health, especially out of Georgetown, um, when we screened there, I was walking the halls looking for the bathroom because, you know, bathrooms are impossible to find in hospitals. And uh, I saw this board that had um, something called this, the, the Good Catch program. And I read it and it was just a literal public facing explanation of an error that was prevented. It, it went into great detail, didn't share the patient name, did share the nurses and doctors involved in preventing that error from causing harm. And I think it's such a great model for hospitals to take because if you can openly acknowledge that um, you know, errors are preventable, most of these errors are preventable, you can start to teach others in the hospital to prevent them and even patients uh, to, to look for them. You know, it, it's, it's, it's not that complicated uh, to, to open up to the patient to say, look, we're not perfect. We're just like you. We're humans. Uh, we make mistakes. Most of the mistakes we make are not egregious, are not intentional, and are probably not even that harmful. But as a collection of mistakes, as they start to grow, as they get unnoticed, they can cause harm. And you're the first line of defense to say, hey, that didn't sound right that wasn't the medication I thought I was supposed to get, or just, just, just a stop in the line. And you see it in the surgical room. They actually have something most hospitals call stop the line, where they actually stop and reassess whether they have all the right tools, whether they're processing uh, the right information, whether the room is, is organized the way it should be. And it, imagine just taking 10 to 15 seconds every couple minutes Sure, uh, I'm sure some bottom line person will think that that's a waste of money, uh, but it probably is less a waste of money than actually harming a patient and having to deal with the lawsuit that comes with it. Uh, I've heard of uh, a couple of operating rooms installing cameras to record what actually happens, and people have likened it to uh, police officers wearing body cams. 
and the parallel being that uh, there was a huge decrease in public complaints of police brutality and abuse when the police are wearing their body cams. And by logic, there'd be uh, fewer errors, um, egregious or otherwise, if there was a recording of uh, the medical appointment or, in these cases, the operation. I, I would have loved to go into that exact detail in the film. I felt like it was maybe a little too touchy, could turn some some of our audience off if we were trying to sort of, you know, attract both sides of the aisle uh, to this story. But it's so true. And uh, I think actually the way that... Um, not only gun violence, but, um, you know, whatever you call police over, uh, overuse, I don't know what they call it, uh, but uh, all of these other examples of uh, societal problems and the fixes that come with them can be embraced by healthcare. Um, aviation is the most common one that gets brought up a lot and therefore we put that in the film. We, we even interviewed Sully Sullenberger to share some of his insight from the crash uh, or the, the water landing in the Hudson River that he became famous for. And I, I think that it's, it's vital that healthcare takes a look outside of its own walls and says, what are some of the problems uh, in which other industries that are supposedly very reliable um, when they mess up, what do they do? And in the film, we we have a sequence in which we address the cameras in the surgical theater. Uh, but what we found was up in Toronto is uh, this surgical team that has developed not just cameras, but a whole data stream that is compiled into a, a sort of like a graph that shows when um, errors are most likely to occur. Handoffs, the, the, it registers when the doors are opening, it registers when tools are handed off, it registers air temperature, I mean, everything. And using that data to actually get uh, answers and not just having a camera in the operating room in case something goes wrong so that you can use it in a lawsuit or in a courtroom to protect yourself or to prove what happened or what didn't happen but to actually use the data that's, uh, that's collectible and put it together in a way that can help everybody because it, it became clear to them that the hand, that errors were becoming more prominent during the handoff from the chief surgeon to the resident surgeon. Again, I don't know the terminology that well, and I think we've addressed that not everybody does, but um, handoffs are a big part of healthcare, whether you're just in there, um, checking on a cough in the hospital ER or whether you're in a, in a very complicated surgery. And it's such an obvious time in which things can go wrong. Um, and I think they've really discovered through this data that in the surgical theater, um, that is a vital time in which they really have to close the gap and they have to make sure that uh, things don't go wrong because they escalate tenfold in a surgery. So the monitoring isn't to be used in a punitive fashion in that specific instance by that particular harmed patient, if that was the outcome, but more to improve the system and the overall quality of care and the patient safety. I, I think that it's, um, if you really want to improve healthcare, 
you have to think about more than just preventing lawsuits. And there, you know, I, I, I think that you, you, as a business, and every hospital is a business, you have to think about uh, the bottom line. There's no question. I think every patient understands that too. But uh, the, the real bottom line are, pay, are, are lives. And not just how many die in a hospital, but how many leave a hospital healthier than when they came in and don't have to come back two weeks later for a new problem. Um, that's to be expected of healthcare. We expect healthcare to do what it's supposed to do when it's supposed to do it uh, and, and, and not cause new problems. But we see it far too often. And I think one of the, you know, you'll, you'll find a lot of people talking about medical error in the vein of, uh, you know, surgical tools left in a body or wrong legs cut off or infections being uh, caused by unsanitary hospitals. But what I really think is important to focus on, and that communication is not just opening up the conversation to the patient and inviting them in, but it's also making sure that everything that's funneling through the very complex healthcare system is being delivered to the right people, is, is, is being received by those people. One of the examples in our film uh, Sue Sheridan, whose story uh, has been told before, but we really go into it really deeply and follow her family. And I think that's one of the key components to our film uh, that keeps people engaged. Uh, what, her family experienced two medical errors. And what, the first one was her son, Cal, who um, has cerebral palsy now um, and got that at five days old because of a very small oversight on a very affordable and cheap test that could have been performed when he had jaundice rather than him going home uh, and, and presuming that this was just, you know, your, your regular old little jaundice that'll go away with some heat lamps. Uh, but, but the other case in their family was uh, the father, Pat, who was diagnosed with cancer, but at first they thought the cancer was benign they sent the tests forward for additional lab um, pathologies, and the results were that it was uh, a malignant tumor that was uh, very, very uh, dangerous and needed to be removed, obviously, and that those test results didn't get through for six months because essentially it was just an overlooked fax. The person who sent the fax uh, from the labs didn't check to make sure it was received, and the people on the other end, um, who directly connect with the patient, didn't really bother to double check why they hadn't received that information yet. And so six months went by and he did not get the proper treatment. Now he died of cancer, right? We all agree that somebody who dies of cancer, dies of cancer, goes on their um, death certificate. But what doesn't go on there is that they lost six months of treatment it could have had a longer life, if not even had the cancer completely uh, eliminated, had they been getting treatment from the day one that they should have been. And I think that's the big missing picture here. How do we make sure that it's happening right away, the right treatment at the right time? And so organizations like the Society for Diagnostic Error in Medicine, I believe that's correct, um, SDIM is there acronym uh, is really kind of leading the charge 
on focusing on diagnostic errors, which I think a lot of people need to learn about because that's probably the, the number one thing that patients, especially people listening, who uh, want to make themselves safer and protect themselves in a hospital scenario can uh, get involved in. And all it takes is open ears, open eyes, and a willingness to speak up if something doesn't sound right. So you sort of bring up two things there. Um, the culture of the medical system and the power that plays out within that system. So there has been a lot of talk recently about empowering patients, but we've got many decades where patients were not empowered. They weren't encouraged to speak up. Uh, so it would take a, a change in the culture of the patients, per se, but also a change in the medical system culture. Mm -hmm. And so you also mentioned about the aviation industry. Is it safe to assume that the biggest difference between the aviation industry and the medical industry is the culture and that culture of transparency or lack thereof? 1,000%. Um, until I guess it was a year ago until, um, that unfortunate incident in which a woman, uh, like some shrapnel hit the window of a, of a commercial airliner and a woman was like essentially sucked out of the plane. Do you remember this? Yeah. Um, and died. That was the first, uh, aviate commercial aviation accident that led to a death in years years i mean a record was broken a true record and um you know we hear often we hear about planes that go down or or something you know um, um they're not usually um they're usually not accidents um what we've what they've found in a lot of the studies and now you know there are there's the uh, much more controversial situation right now with the, um, I want to, I'm trying to remember the name of them. I think it's Boeing, right? Um, they've um, had a huge problem with that, right? And what you realize is that they've been open um, ever since things went wrong. They've been open about what went wrong, um, trying to figure out where the source of that problem was and making sure that rather than some blame game and lawsuits and, um, and just kind of saying, oh, it's their fault. They talk about what they're doing to fix it. And they take everything off the line and they fix the problem. And they're not gonna put it back until it's fixed. The same thing should happen in healthcare. I mean, it, whether it's um, an individual who is repeatedly you know, causing harm, or whether it's a, a, a type of medicine delivery of care that is not reliable, they need to be reassessed all the time. Now, in aviation, pilots, uh, I think it's every five years, have to retake their test, have to prove that they're still as capable as they were when they first got their license. We don't do that with cars, do we? You get your license when you're 16 years old, when you're at your brightest and most intelligent and wise, right? I mean, like, why, why do we give people licenses to drive vehicles, which is a... a pretty dangerous thing too. Um, the death rate is not small. And we just assume that they'll be good for the rest of their life until we have to take it away from them because they've abused that privilege. This, that's kind of what happens in healthcare. I mean, 
They study the body, they study the way to deliver care, but they don't necessarily study how to communicate with patients. They don't always get um, the lessons they need to learn how to deal with um, a scenario that goes wrong. And yes, that comes with life, but we need to make sure that we are open and honest about where healthcare is weak and where it can be improved. And that's why the aviation industry has repeatedly been called upon as the sort of case study for healthcare, because it's it's what it's it's super dangerous. Um, we're, you're putting people in harm's way every second they're in an airplane. I mean, you're flying hundreds of miles an hour, thousands of feet up in the air. Um, any mistake could be fatal for hundreds of people. But when things have gone wrong in the past, they the the airline industries work together as a as a unit, and they fix the problem globally. This is the other problem in healthcare is that when something happens in Indiana at a hospital to a patient, only that hospital and only the patient's family are working to fix whatever went wrong, whether it's uh, repair the health issue that was uh, caused by the error or you know, shut them up with money. Uh, whereas you look at hospitals um, that really share their information and share their research and their data, I think those are the ones to look at. There's some in like uh, Intermountain Healthcare in Utah, or uh, you know, there's actually quite a few in Boston that have um, embraced imperfection and have said, um, when something goes wrong, we huddle everyone around to figure out how it went wrong and how to fix that problem, uh, rather than trying to prevent bad PR by blaming somebody for the problem and then just firing them. That's not how you fix a problem. So it sounds like uh, these couple of places that clinics or hospitals that you've cited that are taking this um, error as a learning experience approach mirrors uh, how Boeing is responding to their recent errors. How, if at all, does that contrast with what happened with Sue and her family? How did the hospital respond in each of those instances? Well, uh, they, we go into it a little bit in the film, um, but to help reiterate uh, in a general sense, there are two very different situations. Um, you know, litigation did happen. Um, in one situation, the family was, uh, I, I don't know what the term is, but you know, they won the case and in the other, they didn't. And I think that's, it, while that is very interesting, we chose not to go into the litigious side of these stories in our documentary. Uh, we felt that was not embracing the positive uh, and actually not that helpful anyway. But the, you know, the, the story of, her son was one in which um, they didn't really get much in the way of resolution, uh, but they did eventually have uh, uh, like an on camera. And I think this is available on the internet somewhere. It's like an interview in which this news station set up the CEO of the hospital and Sue to talk to each other on camera in which they can talk about what happened and how they're going to make sure it doesn't happen to anyone else. Uh, Sue has turned her entire life into one of advocacy in which one of, I think, her crowning achievements is uh, making sure that checking for bilirubin tests, uh, which is the test that her son should have received in a timely manner, are given and are a requirement. 
because that's going to be a huge moment for a child's uh, development. And obviously, the right care has to be delivered. For her husband's situation, uh, we actually, I, I'm, I'm, I think this is a really cool result of, of making this documentary is, um, you know, it's been almost 20 years, I guess, 18 years, something like that, uh, since her husband died. And the hospital in which that occurred screened our documentary, had a panel discussion after it. And it was the first time that that hospital had openly discussed that case with its own staff, with its own people and said, this happened here and we're gonna make sure that it doesn't happen again. And I, I, I mean, it's <laughs> 16, 18 years later, that's a long time for them to actually uh, embrace it. But you know, she has not gone lightly and just disappeared. She has had conversations with them and I think they have done some important things to make sure that they learn from these mistakes. But uh, you know, when it happened, the, the, the pathologist had told her that it wasn't his job to check to make sure that the information got through the line all the way to the physician who would then tell her and her husband uh, about the pathology. And that's no way to treat this issue. Um, at, now, setting aside the idiocy of saying that out loud, <laughs> Uh, it shouldn't even be a part of someone's mindset when you're in healthcare, um, and so I think it's it's a it's difficult to to ask people in healthcare who see thousands and thousands of people a month uh, to treat every single patient as if they were their own mother or their own spouse and take them seriously when they say something and treat them as best they can but it's the way it needs to be. Uh, it might not be as efficient uh, and we're losing physicians every day. There's gonna be a shortage by 2024 of physicians according to some recent research because of burnout, which is a, a, a term that's used in healthcare to define um, the, the way that uh, physicians have to do their job in which they're basically not only uh, not only a doctor, but also an entrepreneur where they have to like collect new business and deal with money and deal with insurer, insurers. And so it's very tough for them to do their job. I sympathize with people in healthcare uh, to the extent that I think their job is one of the most challenging in all of the world. But there are areas in which they can improve that aren't sexy and cool and fun, um, but are vital to delivering safer care. And I think will make their job easier, um, even though they have to add a step or two along the way. I've heard, and you may know if this is factually accurate, that uh, physicians have a very high, if not the highest suicide rate of all professions. Yeah. Uh, we, we were doing some research on making a sort of follow-up documentary, a quasi-sequel about burnout and about clinician burnout especially. Um, and that was one of the sort of the, the statistics that jumps out right away. Um, suicide is a, a rampant in clinician culture, especially physicians. And I don't think that there is much in the way of sympathy for them because most people assume that they're all driving, you know, brand new Mercedes and um, counting cash, you know, every night. 
but that's just not really how it works. Um, I, you know, I'm not a doctor. I have friends who are in medicine and I, 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 their stories of exhaustion and of overwork, uh, it scares me. And I, I think it's something that we need to take seriously as a culture. If we want our doctors, our nurses, our surgeons to treat us well, to treat us right, we also need to treat them right. I don't think that it should be a give and take. Um, they go into this job be, knowing full well that it's difficult. But I, I think it's very hard to expect human beings to act perfectly all the time if they're not treated well in, in the first place. But it is important to keep that in perspective um, because when things do go wrong, I think too often the hospitals worry more about their image and uh, worry more about their bottom line than they do about the people. And I think it's, it is a system versus people problem. It, it, the systems don't work in a way that promotes safety and accuracy. It, it promotes volume. And I think any industry you would see volume is not usually conducive to, you know, reliability and it, you know people are, are people aren't people are, are probably uh, not decreasing in in their volume the number of people going to the healthcare system is not getting any smaller but the number of people delivering care is and so it, it's only going to get worse if that's the decline the rate that we're going and so that's why I really call on patients to be a voice in the hospital room to be a voice even in, the, in an elderly care facility. You know, it's not just a hospital problem. So everybody needs to be aware and you don't have to go to school for four years, eight years, 12 years, spend $600,000 or whatever to learn this stuff. You just need to listen and you need to look. And um, I, I, I really think you could curb a lot of these mistakes if you engage the patients and if patients themselves feel empowered to engage in the first place uh, because the system allows them to. Well, you're not going to get me to disagree with that. Uh, I also concur with your point uh, about the system is what is uh, really the problem, not so much the individual physician. So many of them go into it with altruistic and uh, empathic feelings, and then they come up against a system that sort of the antithesis to that. Mm -hmm. Regarding the uh, high suicide rate amongst physicians, when I first heard that, I wondered how many, and this is sort of a side question, I wonder how many of them, of those suicides are from doctors who don't want to die a suffering death that they've often witnessed. Because I've heard of when doctors are questioned, would you go to the same extents for yourself? and for maybe your immediate family members that you sort of are forced to go to for your patients, would you? And the majority of them say no. That's really interesting. Uh, and it's tough to say. I think every person is, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> every person is an individual, right? And, and, and when you look at suicide, especially, uh, that's a very, very uh, individual choice that any person's going to make. 
and the causes are could be any one of a million um, and and I wouldn't be surprised if financial uh, trouble is is also a big part of of that statistic because most of these people are going into their careers with six figures of debt and um, many of them have families and this job just doesn't solve all of those problems and on top of it they go home every day having witnessed whatever atrocities they have to see um, whether they're an ear nose throat doctor or a er surgeon or whatever uh, it, it's a tough job uh, and i think if you really want to think of there are other tough jobs too that don't lead the world in or lead the country in suicide rates so we have to think about if we really want to solve that problem where are these coming from and, and i'll be honest like i've been touring the country with this film and this comes up a lot we've 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 screened the film at a lot of hospitals and healthcare organizations and and you know um they do ask questions about the patients and about what they can do to help patients but there is often this sort of underlying concern about well what about us what are, what about us so I, I can't report an error that i saw because i'm going to lose my job uh i can't call out the head surgeon because i'm going to lose my job and uh, I'm already worried enough about myself, like how can I look at all these other people out there and, and, and call out those errors? And there is a hierarchy, a hierarchy in, in, uh, in healthcare that's not healthy either, in which these experienced doctors who are you know, in their 60s, 70s, um, maybe even older, who have a lot of years behind them, but have also been coming from a culture that didn't embrace patient safety as a thing it, that came before um, teaching doctors how to communicate about an error was the thing. And I think it's just a matter of treating, let's, let's think about doctors and nurses and surgeons as people who at the end of their 24 hour, which should never, they should never have to do that in the first place, shift, um, go home to a life. And, you know, I, I've been to a hospital that made the counter argument to me on stage um, about, well, you know, we have fixed the problem. They said, quote unquote, we have fixed the problem of physician burnout because we make sure that um, every clinician goes home and has minimum six hours minimum um, of turnover time. Like we're not gonna do any more two, three, four hour turnarounds. And then, so, but, but how are we going to expect people to go home after 12, 14, 24 hours of work and just like spend the six hours they have um, making it useful for the next 24 hour shift? Like, you know, I, I don't have an answer to this problem. We haven't made this documentary yet. And that's usually how I get answers is getting uh, some scrounging some money together and interviewing the top dogs about these issues. But what I think is, is a lesson to learn about this is that suicide is, and it is, is, as I said before, a very individual act, and it comes from very, very different sources of, of, of whether it's depression or, or, or other choices that they're making. It, it, it comes also from one very singular place in which I think most doctors and nurses and surgeons do not feel like their profession is respected by the people who make the ultimate decisions about how they have to do their job, whether it's uh, hospital management or whether it is federal mandates 
on how healthcare is to be delivered. And I, that's why, you know, it's very important for us to look at those things and not take them for granted, not say, well, look, I mean, this is the way we've been doing it for 60, 70 years. Why change now? Now is the time to change some of these things. And I, I hope that we can get enough awareness in which patient safety is taken seriously, because if it is, I don't think that that, I don't think that that means uh, we're not thinking about the doctors and nurses. In fact, I think it's the opposite. I think you start to fix patient safety by first tackling how healthcare is delivered and what we expect of those people in that delivery of care. Yeah, that is something that's always baffled slash shocked me is the long hours that uh, physicians and nurses are putting in. It's not like they're in a factory making widgets. It's life and death decisions. And we know from simple studies how cognitive impaired people get after, you know, just a few hours of too little sleep. So that, that's always been something that's absolutely stumped me. But I, I guess that really speaks to how ingrained the culture is of we shall overcome and we are powerful and we do no wrong. Yeah. Well, let's look back at, at the aviation industry. They do not allow uh, pilots to operate a plane if they haven't had a specific amount of hours of sleep and uh, if they've had even one drink of alcohol, one. Um, and, and that's become a standard. I'm sure some hospitals have their own little standards, but why is that not just a federal, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality? It is such an important part of learning where we can get better in this, uh, in this country, in our healthcare system. But we don't really do much with that information. It's really hard to find um, because they're underfunded. Uh, I'm not going to be able to get them, you know, $500 million by going on podcasts or making documentaries. But I do believe that we all have to work together to create some awareness on these areas that are underfunded and underappreciated that can cause significant, huge change. Um, to give one small example, that agency is responsible for um, essentially a, a, a standard in healthcare uh, in, in which surgeons have to stop and uh, and and have a have a chat before a surgery. Right, basically make sure they have all the tools, make sure they know who they're operating on, make sure that they're doing the right leg. You know, all these things. These are things that come from research. And they come from understanding flaws in the system and addressing them directly. It's not that complicated. And I just wish, I just wish that um, our our country especially treated this more seriously because we have enough on our plate. And I have a very hard time believing that there's enough room for uh, the American people to get behind another issue. But this isn't just like a new issue. We should have been behind this for the last 20 years. And we're doing ourselves a disservice by not doing that. Everybody deserves the opportunity to get health care. Yeah, uh, we need to have discussions about access to care. We need to have discussions about, uh, about diversity and how uh, different um, ethnicities and different cultures and different backgrounds are receiving 
the same kind of care because that's a, that's a problem too. But all of these things are only improved if we also think about them from a patient safety perspective and it just doesn't happen. So it almost sounds like you're making the case that we need to clean house at the top of the medical system and replace them with the aviation safety folks and do a top-down cultural change. I, I, I don't know. I, I, do think, I do think that aviation has done a lot of good. Um, but it is driven by a corporate, uh, a corporate model as well. One that, um, you know, you jump on a plane that goes to Amsterdam and then that plane comes back to the United States. Um, we're not, every country does it differently. Uh, and yet they kind of share the air, they kind of share the, uh, the airspace. And, and so it's a lot easier for them to get around a round table and talk. But when you have um, as many hospitals as we have in this country, and, and especially how you know, we kind of designate them to be their own, uh, their own police, judge, jury, executioner, it's, it's very difficult to come up with a plan that everybody can follow. And you have, uh, there, there are things like the Joint Commission that are somewhat resembling what happens in aviation, but we don't really have, um, like, and that organization that is responsible for looking at the scene of an accident in aviation, collecting the facts, grabbing that black box, determining as quickly as possible what happened, and then delivering that information to every single airline so that that problem can be fixed by every airline and has to be. And why is that not happening in healthcare? It's because one person dies at a time. If you run an answer, that's the answer. It's not a good answer. It's not a good reason, but it is the answer. It is because when a plane crashes, 200, 300 people die instantly. And those stories and those lives are spread across wherever they come from. And, and all these other people are affected and everybody who flies on an airplane is now scared. And so we worry, but when Pat Sheridan dies from cancer uh, and doesn't get six months of treatment because of a diagnostic error and communication breakdown, um, I don't have cancer, so why should I care? It's not my problem. And, and yet everybody goes to a hospital at some point in their life or at least experiences healthcare, right? At some point in their life. And so, it's just, it boggles the mind to think that we don't really talk about this, um, but we don't. And when we started making this documentary three plus years ago, it, it was very clear to us that nobody else has made this documentary yet. There are healthcare documentaries, and in a couple of them, they spend one to two minutes on the stats behind medical error and healthcare's reliability, and then they move on. And um, I, 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 I think that we're, in a, we're hopefully in a turning point because ever since our movie has been completed, we saw something on HBO called um, Bleed Out, which is a documentary by, uh, by a, a comedian 
who told, tells the story of his mother or grandmother, I forget, um, and her experience with medical error over many years. And it's a first person sort of POV experience. So very different from our film, but something else to sort of add to your, your rapport of, of learning about this issue. But then there was also uh, Bleeding Edge, which was on Netflix, which was about the, uh, the FDA's lackadaisical process in um, approving certain medical devices and instruments and how those have affected patients. And in, in, in essence, that is also a medical error story. So three documentaries over the course of one calendar year coming out um, is progress. And I just don't know how we break through uh, to the national stage. We are working on it. Um, I'm working with a lot of people right now. Um, I'm part of a big team that's trying to come up with something that uh, I can't really go into great detail about, but I hope you'll hear about it soon that will put patient safety back on the map. And I, I think it's, it, it feels like we're moving in a good direction, but I can't tell if that's just because I'm now involved or uh, my eyes are opened or if it's always been like this and I just, just didn't know. So it almost sounds like that you're saying that some of the responsibility for making this change also lies with the media. If they have re been reporting every night that yes, another two uh, jumbo jet, planes crashed today. Well, it's the equivalent of those, but it happened in various hospitals around the country. That would be helpful to bring up awareness and getting the message out. So there's the, the media is having a responsibility here as well? Uh, no question. I think, look, I live in Chicago. You may have heard the train. Uh, I live above the, the elevated train. I could take that train uh, 20 minutes southbound and I could be in a community that is making national headlines all the time because of uh, gun violence. And uh, every morning, every morning on the news, there are four or five stories of gun violence here in Chicago. And uh, that problem persists despite uh, you know, actual action being taken, both at the grassroots level of getting, you know, people off the streets and giving them act, um, community and engagement, um, as well as, you know, the, the police force and um, local government trying to establish whatever they're doing <laughs> to try and fix the problem. But it is still there. And I think that um, the comparison of these two things is that in healthcare, Errors will always occur. You cannot eliminate errors, no matter what you do. Humans will make mistakes. But what you can do is you can learn from those mistakes and make sure that they don't cause harm. And that is, that's the real crux of the story of patient safety. And I really think that there's a lot more work to be done that can only happen if you engage the public. And if everybody says, we're here, we care, we want you to fix this problem. So it needs to be a, a groundswell of support, a, a movement of sorts to make significant change. And that, and you know, media is hugely responsible for what people care about in this country. Um, I would argue as somebody who 
studied journalism in college, who has been a documentary storyteller ever since. Um, the media has all the power on what people care about. Um, movies follow suit. Movies are a reflection of our time. Uh, the media is the sort of driver of the car. And I mean, even on the political stage, um, I, don't, I don't see it as the media uh, responding to what's happening politically. I see it as the media is essentially telling the political atmosphere what it should care about. And we as a country choose what we want to go up in arms about what we want to march for, what we want to yell about, what we want to take to the streets for. And, and I don't think that people see this as a problem that can be fixed by that, but I actually disagree. I think that this is a problem in which we need a better way to show the scale, the scope, and the frequency without blaming doctors and nurses for making the mistakes. Look, there's no villain in patient safety. There, for there are sometimes for individual cases where an action, it's not. I don't want to. I don't want to lump in actual malpractice with medical error. I think they're two different things. Uh, but when it comes to medical error and communication breakdowns and innocent mistakes that cause actual harm, it's very hard to find a villain. And I think that's what makes this problem very hard to solve. Um, we, we need a villain, especially here in America. We need somebody to blame. And, and, and you know, as we saw in a case last year, I believe, with Vanderbilt, in which, uh, you know, a nurse very publicly was thrown under the bus and um, it made national headlines. Of, uh, you know, a, a patient died because of an overdose of, um, of a medicine because the, the nurse was using the pull-down bar and the first two letters were the same and she clicked the button on the wrong medication because the first two letters were the same, but this one was a fatal medication at the dosage that she was delivering in. And uh, that's a system problem. That's a system failure. The system made it so easy for her humanness to, to lead to harm. It's not her fault. Yet, we see this far too often in which the hospital systems themselves, instead of taking some blame and making an instant change, throw the person who clicked the button under the bus, says, this person made the mistake, this shouldn't have happened because uh, she clicked the button, it's not our fault, go to jail. I mean, literally, she went to jail. So, you know, this is a story you can find with a quick Google search, and it's so common. People that, and, and then we go back to wondering why people are too scared to report errors when they see them. We wonder why some people um, think they can't even survive, physically survive in this culture. Um, it's a culture shift in healthcare that needs to start from the top. And I think we all know what happens, or we all know how to change the mindsets of the people at the top. And it's to all work together and tell them, we won't buy your product, we won't, we won't come to your hospital if you don't make this change. But again, I know what someone's thinking now, they're like, well, I mean, I can only have, my insurance only allows me to go to this one hospital, so what can I do? It's a never ending cycle of problems. That's why we're here. All right.
I know from counseling clients and from folks I've interviewed on the podcast that have been victors, victims slash survivors of medical error, that often they say that they are more traumatized by how the hospital and system responded to their medical error than they were from the original trauma of the medical error. I think that's exactly the story with Sue, or Sue Sheridan from our documentary. She'll be the first to tell you, um, most patients, they just want to be treated um, with honesty and transparency. And when something goes wrong, they want you to tell them what happened and they want you, they, they'll work together with you to fix and make sure this doesn't happen to somebody else. Uh, that's not usually how it happens, right? It's, it's, it's usually a cover up or a denial um, or a, this is just how healthcare works. Sorry, it sucks for you. That's, that's not the appropriate way to handle these, these circumstances. And most of these lawsuits that people see, or the reason why we see billboards on the side of, uh, every highway and signs on the side of every bus about, uh, medical malpractice lawyers is because we have created a culture of, of lawsuits in order to get the information out of hospitals. Um, it shouldn't be that way. You shouldn't have to sue a multi-million dollar hospital in order to get answers. It's not about money for most of these people. I, mean, I, I doubt you'd find many people who sue a hospital because they want a payday. It's because they want answers. And um, I think Sue's story was really interesting to us because she, she sued for less money uh, in exchange for them op opening the story, basically saying, you know, not closing down all the data, not shoving it into a cabinet and leaving it there forever, but it, allowing people to research and see what happened to her family. Uh, that should be normal. I mean, that should just be, that should be the way it always is so that people can learn. I, I don't, I, I don't love, um, I don't love this sort of lawsuit culture uh, for a number of reasons, but I think that's the number one reason we should get away from it um, and just start embracing that collaboration between patient and provider. A couple of more personal questions. How do you reconcile the, the work of your father and the legacy that he's created with the system that you see in the impact of the system? Well, I do think that uh, I'm very fortunate to have gone around the country interviewing people who knew my father, uh, sharing the film, meeting people who knew him as well. I, I, I maybe knew five to 10 people who worked with him before we made this documentary. I've met hundreds now. And a lot of them share a sentiment that the uh, approach that he took and the passion that he had still inspires them today. And it's, it's a really cool as a son to hear that um, you know, 16 years, 17 years after he's passed away, uh, to know that he still has an impact on the healthcare system, even if it's one person at a time. Uh, but I, I do feel like uh, the legacy that he had left that is easy to find on C-SPAN or uh, on, on the internet with videos of him on TV or in front of uh, Congress, testifying about medical error is gone completely. And I don't know why that is. I wonder 
you know, it was he really the guy? Was it because uh, he was so good at talking to people in a, in a bipartisan way about this issue that allowed him to take the stage on it? Or was it because uh, there just was never, that that was just the time. That was just, that was when the, the, the iron was hot and people were talking about it. And that was our chance. I do think that we need another leader. We need somebody who has the ability to bring people together around this issue. And now I think the way culture is set up is we need a celebrity to do that. Um, as kind of silly as that sounds, I do think that um, people don't see this as a major issue because there is not a familiar face talking about it. Um, Dennis Quaid, who most people know has a famous actor, his two sons um, almost died from uh, medication uh, error. He made a short documentary about it about 10 years ago or so. And he, he has a foundation and, you know, he worked very hard. Um, I, I'm not sure where he's at now, but, you know, there are more recent situations with famous people who could spearhead this. Um, Serena Williams being one who, a uh, famous tennis player who uh, nearly died because of what was a combination of uh, preventable harm and uh, um, the, so the way that... Uh, I'll just be honest, the way that black women are treated during pregnancy versus the way that white women are treated during pregnancy, I think that that's not, that's no, it's not a surprise to many and the research is there that it's different. Um, the problem is that medical error is a very scary term and it is an attack on all doctors. It's an attack on all nurses and all surgeons and it shouldn't be treated that way. Um, it, I, I, I think there's too much opposition to the term and to patient safety and, and uh, preventable harm as terms that the healthcare industry needs to embrace as just part of it and needs to accept as not, a, not a, an offensive term to clinicians, but actually as one that might embrace them if they could step up to the plate and explain how these things happen and how we can prevent them. And I just don't, I don't know. I, I, I do think that um, I, I'm proud of the legacy that my father has left, but I do worry that um, it has been forgotten by the people who were spearheading it in the first place. Why is this not a national topic anymore? How did it disappear from the headlines? Um, I have some, some thoughts on why, but I don't think any of them are the reason. I think we just need another superhero who can really jump up and say this is an issue we have to talk about well those are really uh key questions that need answers too but maybe maybe you do have the answer we need a superhero slash super celebrity so for you personally mike moving forward what's next on your agenda you mentioned you're working on this other project which is on the dl for now what else is going on with you uh, well, I'm sort of back to, I'm, I'm, I'm balancing uh, representing this film and we're, uh, I, I've been asked to speak at symposiums now and, uh, and medical events and something I never thought I'd be doing three or four years ago, but I, I, I have this fresh perspective now with um, having screened the film hundreds of times and, and spoken on it um, dozens of times and 
I've seen how hospitals look from the inside out and when, when they're working on this topic and when they're not. And I've been able to share that with communities, small and large. I'll be in a couple of weeks, I'll be in a, in, in like the Allegheny mountain range, uh, near the Appalachians talking to a very small group of people who are gathering to talk about infectious diseases. I mean, uh, you, you forget that talking to 20 people at a time, uh, can change thousands of lives. You know, we don't have to tell, we don't, we don't need whatever many millions of people live in this country. We actually do need to go one person at a time and change one mind at a time. And uh, that's always the right approach as a documentary filmmaker, because you only have one audience member at all times. And it's the person who's watching it, whether there's a hundred people in the theater or not, each person is watching it with their own set of eyes and their own mind. So, you know, that, that's been my main goal right now is to sort of continue to have conversations about patient safety while also balancing my passion as a filmmaker. Um, I'd love to stay in this world and in this topic, but uh, the reality is it's very difficult to get funding and very difficult to work on projects that take three years every time. Uh, but uh, we're working on some things and I, I'm not done with patient safety, but uh, we do have some other projects we'll probably be working on too. Okay, I see that uh, there's going to be a screening in Ottawa in September at the Canadian Patient Safety Institute meeting. Are you going up there for that? I was going to, but I'm going to be out of the country on uh, a much needed vacation. I, uh, I'm excited for that one, though. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, we don't have all the details yet, um, so I haven't announced it yet. But uh, we will be having our first free online screening of the film. Um, and everybody and anybody can watch it. It'll play, um, we'll have a live stream essentially of the movie. And uh, uh, I think it's gonna be at 4 p.m., 3 or 4 p.m. Eastern time on the 17th, which is officially World, the World Health Organization is, is naming September 17th as uh, World Patient Safety Day. Uh, that's why that date is significant now. Uh, so, you know, I would, if you're interested in watching the film for free um, in a streaming way uh, with a, hopefully a chat next to it and a Twitter chat to follow it and um, other sort of engaging ways to talk during the movie, uh, we'll be announcing that through our website, which is www.toairishumanfilm.com and through our Twitter account, which is uh, at to air is human doc. So we, we try to keep things updated. Um, but our website, as you mentioned, does have a list of screenings and um, we have things pick up in the fall. And uh, as as educators come back and want to get their medical students to see the film. But those screenings are usually open to members of the public as well. So if you see a screening that's, you know, like local, we want you to come and if you want to host a screening we take we 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 need people to host the screenings we help work on those screenings together with whoever wants to bring it to their community i mean that's that's how we get this film screened we're not making you know like huge bucks uh selling it on itunes and amazon although it is there it's the screenings that are important to us because people can talk in a room together 
after they see the film and have a conversation like you and I just had about how to fix this problem and what to do moving on from here. Wow, that's pretty awesome. It's uh, not just a documentary film. It's a sort of a platform for people to have discussion and find solutions. We try to make sure that the, f the, the film is, a, is a, a conversation starter, not a conversation ender. I mean, you know, a lot of documentaries just kind of slam the door shut on something. And, and they can be very powerful in doing so. But uh, this is not an issue that uh, is solved yet. Uh, it is one that's in the works. And we need to remind people of where we're at if we want to keep them going in the right direction. Well put, well put. Thank you so much, Mike, for your time and for what you're doing for healthcare. Not, not only in the US, I think your message is a global message, so it really has a huge impact. Thanks to Mike Eisenberg for sharing his experience of delving into and shedding a light on medical errors and patient safety and the machinations that sustain our medical system's high rate of medical error. If you need counseling support for your own experience with medical error or other issues like LGBT, living with a chronic illness, or any of life's challenges, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. If you would like to support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron, go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron. To become a premium patron, you get access to video versions of all the podcast interviews. You can also support the podcast by subscribing on any of the podcast platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and you can also leave a kind comment or review. Thank you for listening to this episode of Medical Error Interviews. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.